Okay, good morning. Did I ever tell you the story that when I was in Kent State, we were doing campus ministry up there, and we had a chili cook-off, and my friend, did I ever tell you this story? My friend went to Wendy's <laughs> and entered that chili, completely disguised. But the really sad part of it is, it won. Yeah, that's, that's pretty bad. I don't know what that says. I am absolutely 100% positive my wife did not have an entry that day. No doubt. No doubt. Um, hey, I do hope you come to Vision Night. This is my one chance to talk about it, and uh, it's one of my favorite meetings of the year. And Alex said it very well. Uh, it, for those of you that are a part of our church or are investigating becoming a part of our church, it really is an up-close look at what's going on. And uh, it really helps us to be united together when we have a greater sense of what's happening, where we're going, where we've been. So I do hope you'll come on Sunday, Sunday night. And then we're going to just have a lot of fun together afterwards. Okay. IMHO, in my humble opinion... The most captivating and moving movie scenes do not involve pyrotechnics, car chases, or something blowing up. Rather, what I find riveting is the suspense created by the back-and-forth debates in a courtroom. It all moves in a predictable sequence. Evidence is presented and arguments for guilt or innocence are submitted, each side hoping to prove the rightness and justice of their cause beyond any reasonable doubt. Then the climax comes in the closing argument. The closing argument is virtually an art form involving persuasion, emotive rhetoric, and an appeal to the truth. Famous movies I think of with great scenes of closing arguments. For example, Atticus Finch to kill a mockingbird. Or how about this one? Right? A few good men could have had the picture of Jack Nicholson up there. How about this one? Now, this goes way back. You may not have seen this one. I really like this movie called The Verdict, starring Paul Newman. And finally, more recently, uh, a movie based on a true story called Just Mercy. All of these had dramatic courtroom scenes. Now, this next section of Ephesians can be likened to a courtroom with the presentation and evidence of closing arguments, and it involves you and me. There are three questions afoot. One, who is making the case? Two, to whom is the case being made? And three, who are the exhibits or what is the evidence? Okay? That'll be our outline this morning. Now, before I read the entire passage, I need to set this up a little bit. So open your Bibles. Uh, if you're using our Bible in front of you, it's page 977. We are at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. As Alex said, we're working through the book of Ephesians. Look at the first verse. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, and then the sentence breaks off. 
And Paul heads in a different direction. You can actually see there, even as it's written, that he breaks off. Now, he will not come back to this original thought until verse 14. Look at verse 14, and you see the obvious bridge, for he repeats that phrase, for this reason. You see that in verse 14? For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Ah. So, Paul was going, we, we get here that Paul was going to tell the Ephesians the content of his prayer, but gets sidetracked. What sidetracks him? Well, at the end of chapter 2, Paul had described the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace that reconciles former enemies, Jews and Gentiles, into a new creation, into a new humanity. He's then about to launch into a prayer, praying that God would take these explosive truths and make them real in their hearts, the hearts of his readers. But Paul can't continue without some reflection, reflecting on his own journey and how he got started in this journey and even how it engaged him personally and even explaining why he's sitting in a prison. So these verses, chapter or 1 through 13, actually comprise one long biological parentheses before Paul begins the prayer. Okay? Let's stand. And I'm going to read now our text for today. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the, or the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you to not lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray together. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask you to give us understanding into what your communicating here to us in a way that resonates with our heart and applies to what we're facing today as individuals, to what we're facing as a church. 
Lord, make yourself and your understanding of the world more clear to us so that we might know who we are and that we might understand our place in this world and we might understand more about the age to come. Father, we ask you now by your Holy Spirit to bring us into the very presence of yourself so that so that we can experience who you are and that your life, your words, your very words can impart their life-giving power to us. Thank you. The kingdom of God is not about only words, our information. It affects not only our heads, but our whole being. There's power here. Father, may we experience power this morning through your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, you can be seated. Okay, you ready to roll through this outline with me? All right, who is making the case? Well, to answer this, we have to understand the bigger picture. And Paul can't be in this biographical section without talking about the bigger picture. Look at verse 9, if you would. Let me repeat it. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What does this mean? Well, we have to back up a little bit here through this passage to understand how Paul got here. In verse 2, Paul begins by saying that he received a revelation from God, a mystery from God. Now, not mystery as in something dark or foreboding, but mystery as in something that until now has been hidden or not made clear. He defines the mystery plainly in verse 6. He is recapping what he described in chapter 2, what I mentioned earlier, the creation of a new humanity by virtue of the gospel of peace. The receiving of this revelation is described in verses 1 through 6. Next, Paul describes his commission, how he became a servant or a steward of that gospel. He was called specifically to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles, verses 7 and 8. Then comes verse 9, beginning with the phrase, so that, meaning this is the goal. This is where it is all leading. Now look again here at the, ver the meat here of verse 9. What is manifold wisdom? The only manifold a lot of you know about is something of dealing with your cars. Well, John Stott writes that the Greek word for manifold means many-colored and was used in the ancient world to describe flowers, embroidered uh, cloth, and woven carpets. Now, as to flowers, what comes to my mind, as you know, are zinnias, a flower I love to plant and grow every year. They are the favorite of many because they are so vibrant and multicolored. A simpler form of this Greek word was used in the Old Testament to refer to Joseph's 
coat of many colors, if you know that story. In other words, there is a texture, color, depth, and beauty to God's wisdom. So as to our first question, who is making the case? God is. He is making his multicolored wisdom manifest. Now, second question is to whom? Who is God making his case to? Again, going back to our verse, if we could just, Tammy, real quickly, go back to our verse here in verse 9. He is making it known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What does that mean? Who are the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places? Now, our minds immediately jump, don't they, to good angels serving God since it is in heaven. Not so fast. Skip over to verse 12 in chapter 6. It's just one turn in your Bibles. I want us to see how Paul used the same phrase. And also keep in mind that the biblical writers, when they use the word heavenly, use it in a broader way to describe in general all the immaterial space beyond the physical realm. Ephesians 6, 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. Where? In the heavenly places. Now, rulers and authorities in the heavenly places are described here are not holy angels serving God. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. One page the other way. Here, Satan is described as the ruler of the kingdom of the air. So I would suggest, given the context of how Paul uses these same words and phrases in the same letter, I believe it is preferable to say that the unseen angelic beings referred to are fallen angels. Now, a word here about evil, just a moment. A word about evil. Our culture is very uncomfortable with evil and believing in an unseen, immaterial world. Our culture would like to say there is no real ontological basis for evil, meaning evil is only a social construct, something we make up arbitrarily to divide good guys and bad guys. And, of course, you know, we're always the good guys. We diminish, therefore, the evil existing in the heart of people, or for that matter, our own hearts. And we cannot accept a world, then, with unseen spirits, good or evil. And yet, I think as Nick pointed out a few weeks ago, Jesus was so clear on this. There is a devil. He is the great deceiver and the father of lies. He governs. Here Paul says, an unseen realm supported by fallen angels, and they seek to oppose God's plan and his people. They wage a cosmic battle against Christ and his church. It is to them, rulers and authorities in heavenly places, that God is making his case. It is to them God is revealing the texture, depth, color, 
and beauty of his multifaceted wisdom. All of this is quite remarkable. And I admit, seems quite fantastic. Except that the scripture teaches that it is true truth. You see, in one sense, the world is a stage. And we are the actors. And God is directing the play. God is demonstrating his eternal wisdom and purpose through people that he has chosen to live in union with his son and through whom the son accomplishes his work. That, of course, is the church. That's you and me. And so this answers our second question. To whom is the case being made? To unseen forces who question God's integrity and wisdom. And that leads to our third question. Who are the exhibits or what is the evidence? As I just hinted at, God in his love and sovereignty has chosen to reveal his many colored wisdom through his church, his people. We are exhibits A and exhibit B and exhibit C intended to demonstrate that his goodness is indisputable, his wisdom irrefutable. The cosmic world, the enemies of God, look on to the stage of the world. And in view of the church, in light of the church, their accusations fall miserably short. This is God's will and intent for the church. And so the question that falls out of this then, the question that falls out of answering our first three questions is really how do the people of God, how do we show his profound wisdom? And I want to suggest there are two ways we do this. One is the way we love, and the second is the way that we suffer. First, the way that we love. Our love is designed to demonstrate the wisdom of God. This ought to distinguish us from every other religion or way of life. This, the connection to, of love to our passage is what Paul has been saying all along about reconciling previous enemies, Jews and Gentiles, into a new humanity. The gospel by its very nature reconciles by bringing warring people or groups together. How does the gospel reconcile? It's very simple. The gospel reconciles because it eliminates all of our false identities. And it is those false identities we develop because of our human pride. You know, pride never happens in a vacuum, does it? It engages, it emerges rather, when evaluating ourselves with others. Of course, always in a favorable light. It bubbles up, pride bubbles up from our fallen self, our disordered heart, and our oversized need for self-justification. It's part of the human condition. The gospel provides a double cure to our pride. It is both the great equalizer and the justifier through Jesus alone. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones captured this when he said, he wrote this. We are all equally sinners. 
We are all equally helpless. We have all come to one and the same Savior. We have the same Father. We have the same salvation. We have the same Holy Spirit. We even have the same trials. And finally, we are all marching together to the same eternal home. It is the knowledge and appreciation of these things that draw us together. Eliminating pride, eliminating false identities opens up a different way for you and me to see the world. People are groups who we were normally in conflict with or thought negatively of or viewed one another as enemies. We now have a new way of seeing based on the gospel and our shared kingdom citizenship. Now, it's important to say that this is not the same as the brotherhood of man espoused by our secular culture, nor is it the same as multiculturalism espoused by our culture. The reason is because what the Bible teaches is deeper and it is more authentic because it does not compromise, it does not ask others to compromise their most deeply sacred beliefs. Well, the effect of all this is a universal global church with no territories and no borders. And John Stott describes this beautifully. He says the church as a multiracial, multicultural community is like a beautiful tapestry. Its members come from a wide range of colorful backgrounds. No other human community resembles it. Its diversity and harmony are unique. It's God's new society, and the many-colored fellowship of the church is a reflection of the wisdom of God, a profound wisdom. You know, we have, uh, and we'll hear next week, actually, a story. We'll hear how far your cookies went in reaching uh, inmates in Marion as we hear from uh, the friends from our members that went, were part of the Kairos ministry outreach. And, you know, part of the great appeal of the videos that we've seen in advertising that is the amazing thing that can happen in a prison. The, the uniting of, for example, former neo-Nazis with African-American inmates. Like, what does that? Like, what power does that? I read a story this past week of a man named Thomas Terrance. He grew up in the 60s and was, in a sense, radicalized by that era of segregation and the era of, of George Wallace. He was just indoctrinated in that. He became a Klansman. He tells this story that one summer night, this is in the 60s, as my accomplice and I attempted to plant a bomb at the home of a Jewish businessman, we were ambushed in a police stakeout. My partner was killed at the scene. Four blasts of shotgun fire at close range left me critically wounded. Doctors told me it would be a miracle if I lived another 45 minutes. Yet God spared my life to the astonishment of the doctors and the dismay of the police. If anyone deserved to die, it was certainly me. At the end of a two-day trial, I was convicted and sentenced to 30 years in a Mississippi state penitentiary. About six months after arriving in prison, I escaped with two other inmates. But a couple of days later, we were apprehended with a, after a blazing gun battle with the authorities during which one of the other inmates was killed. 
Had this man not relieved me from standing watch about a half an hour earlier that day, I would have been the one killed. God had shown me mercy once more. Back in prison, I was confined to a six-by-nine-foot cell in the maximum security unit. To keep from going crazy, I read continuously. This eventually led to the New Testament, specifically the Gospels. But as I read the Gospels in my prison cell, my eyes were opened in a way that went beyond simply understanding the words on the page. My sins came to mind one after another. Conviction grew, and with it, tears of repentance. I needed God's forgiveness, and I knew it only came through trusting Jesus, who had given his life to pay for my sins. One night, I knelt on the concrete floor and prayed a simple prayer, confessing my sins and asking Jesus to forgive me and take over my life. As I read the Bible daily, a whole new world opened to me, and I could not get enough. Early on, God delivered me from hate, and I began to grow in love with others. Friendships developed with black inmates and others who were very different from me. After serving eight years in prison, an extraordinary turn of events resulted in a parole grant to attend university. That set me in motion, set in motion a series of developments which over the next 40 years led me first into campus ministry, then pastoral ministry in a racially mixed church, and finally to a long ministry of teaching and writing at the C.S. Lewis Institute. As I look back over the nearly 50 years since God saved me, I can only thank him and praise him that he didn't give me what I deserved, but because of his full grace and mercy, he gave me exactly what I needed. How does this happen? How does this kind of change happen? It is through the power of the gospel. The way we love is exhibit A in our cosmic witness. The second way, surprisingly, is the way that we suffer. The way that we suffer. Go back to verse 1. And let's read this again. Verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. A prisoner on behalf of you Gentiles. What do you notice about this verse? What, what, what is striking about this verse? First, notice, he does not say Paul, a prisoner of Rome. Paul does not see himself as belonging to Caesar, but to Jesus. Paul saw God as overseeing every affair of his life. It is not by accident or mere circumstance that he is in prison, now for some three to four years, nor is it a moral lapse or for some shameful reason. Now, we don't have time, but we could go back to where this imprisonment all began. It began in Acts chapter 26, when Paul was preaching. And Paul was preaching, and some... Some in Jewish leadership became violent towards him because of his mission to the Gentiles. This very thing we're talking about. He is suffering now because of his call to be a bridge builder between Jews and Gentiles. Again, this story is told in Acts 26. And Paul, by grace and the miracle of God, left that scene alive. He was a victim there of deep Seated prejudice and centuries of hatred. 
But Paul, but Paul did not grow bitter. Look down at verse 13, the end of this section. Again, this, this is sort of like a bookend to this section. So I ask you in verse 13 not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is for your glory. You see, the Ephesians are discouraged because Paul is suffering. Maybe they are baffled because Paul did nothing wrong, and how could God allow this? Paul does not deserve this. That's a good time to just pause and ask ourselves the question that has the suffering of others ever discouraged you or confused you or even made you angry? That sure has for me. When seeing others suffer, we may find ourselves questioning God because it makes us feel uncomfortable. It is natural. It is human to see suffering as always tied in with what we deserve or don't deserve. It's natural to think that way, but friends, you'll find that doctrine in the Hindu Bible. It's called karma. You won't find it in the scriptures. You see, Paul sees suffering differently. He says, my suffering is for your glory. Scratch our heads, how could that be? What's he talking about? What kind of world does Paul live in? A world where his suffering is something for others to boast in or even take pride in. What is his secret? What is the secret sauce to Paul? I wonder when we read the whole passage together, I wonder if you noted the prevalence of grace. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 2. Notice in verse 2, when talking about the revelation he received, how does Paul preface it? You have heard of God's grace given to me for you. And in verse 7, I became a minister of this gospel through how? The grace of God. And in describing himself, what does he say in verse 8? I am less than least of all of God's people. Commentators say there's really no English word that um, pertains to this word that Paul uses, less than least. One person said it would be like saying leaster. There's really no corollary. Why does Paul say this? Because of his murderous past before Christ. As time went on, Paul realized more and more what he had actually done to families and individuals and how deeply he needed the grace and the forgiveness of God. Paul is saying, no one in the church is on a lower moral scale than me. No one is less deserving. Without grace, Paul would have been spiritually and emotionally buried in life-altering guilt and shame. Paul is saying that I am the least among God's people. And listen, friends, this is not a backhanded way of asking for pity. It isn't. Nor is he playing the role of a martyr. Nor is it his primary, his primary identity, the only way he saw himself. He is more than a sinner. 
He is an apostle, for example. He's chosen to preach to the Gentiles. Paul openly and freely acknowledges his gifts and calling. They were part of his identity. If I could borrow from Jelly Roll for a moment. Jelly Roll, if you don't know, is the rapper turned country singer. And he sings, maybe you've heard this song, he sings in his new hit country song, I'm just a long-haired son of a sinner. It's actually a pretty profound song. Now, I'm not an expert on Jelly Roll. I do like the song. In all likelihood, he didn't even write it. Um, but Paul would not say, I am just this. He wouldn't. But what Paul did was is he faced his past honestly and that drew him into an overwhelming appreciation of God's grace in his life. That is part of how he could preach the unsearchable riches of Christ because he experienced them. As can we when we are honest about our own lives, yet alongside of it, receive and welcome the free gift of God's grace. You know, the word unsearchable literally means not to be tracked out. You cannot make sense of it. Job said it like this, he performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. It is beyond human knowledge, language, and categories. Grace was the source of the revelation. Grace was the source of his calling. Grace was the source of his story about Jesus. Okay, that's good and all, but how does that tie in with suffering for the Gentiles as their glory? Here's why. Because the gospel of peace teaches that Jesus had suffered. For Paul to have that grace made available to him, someone had to suffer. Someone had to go down so that Paul could go up. And Jesus' crucifixion proved to Paul that he had, Paul, infinite value and worth despite all that he had done. He was infinitely loved. Jesus was willing to suffer in his body even for him. You see, suffering for another, right? Suffering for another conveys love and value unlike anything else, right? Suffering love cannot be separated from the gospel. Consider the story of Nabil Quirshi, if I'm saying her name correctly. She's a Muslim convert to Jesus Christ. And she had a resoundly Muslim friend named Sehar, who was attracted to parts of Christianity, but couldn't accept the idea of God becoming a human being. So on one occasion, she honestly asked, how can you believe Jesus is God if he was born through the birth canal of a woman and that he even had to use the bathroom? Aren't these things beneath God? Where she affirmed her questions and then asked her one in turn, Sehar, let's say that you are on your way to a very important ceremony and are dressed in your finest clothes. You are about to arrive just on time, but then you see your daughter drowning in a pool of mud. What would you do? Let her drown and arrive looking dignified? 
or rescue her, but arrive at the ceremony covered in mud. Well, Sehar's response was very matter-of-fact. Of course I would jump in the mud and save her. So nuancing the question more, Quirshi asked her, let's say there were others with you. Would you send someone else to save her, or would you save her yourself? She responded, well, if she is my daughter, how could I send anyone else? They would not care for her like I do. I would go myself, definitely. Quirshi said, if you, if you, being human, love your daughter so much that you are willing to lay aside your dignity to save her, how much more can we expect God, if he is our loving father, to lay aside his majesty to save us? The biblical story of God eventually won Sehar's heart. As queer she reported, the message of God's selfless love had overpowered her, and she could no longer remain a Muslim. She had accepted Jesus as her Savior. You see, Jesus got into the mud, right? He got into the mud for us. His suffering proved our value to him. You see, this completely turned upside down Paul's view of suffering. He was not suffering because he got a bad break. He was not suffering because of Nero's cruelty. You see, the church members in Ephesus could glory in Paul's suffering because it conveyed to them their great value and worth. And Paul could join here with Jesus in his ongoing suffering, so to speak, to spread the gospel, to give birth to a new humanity, to see the work of reconciliation took place. Paul understood this very, very well. Two verses quickly, Philippians 3.10. Paul said, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That participation brought intimacy to join with Christ in his suffering for the sake of others. Colossians 1.24, Paul wrote, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my body, flesh here would be body, what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Which means, so to speak, in some way, Christ is still suffering to bring about the completion of his body. And when you and I join with him in his work, we have the privilege of suffering with him. It conveys to others their infinite value and worth to God. Now, cycling back to our point here, I have been trying to show how the way that we love, the way that we love, and the way that we suffer shows the great wisdom of God to the cosmic world watching the world stage. And Paul's experience of grace and the gracious humility that he expressed in his suffering is the profound mark, the indicator that demonstrated God's wisdom. To which the demonic world has no answer for. 
different religions can and they do. They can match a Christian's zeal for mission, right? We've seen that. Different religions can match a Christian's sacrifice for the cause. We certainly have seen that. But what they cannot match is this gracious humility in the light of profound suffering. Only the experience of grace from a life-giving, resurrected Savior can do that. So what is at the heart of this passage? What have we been trying to say this morning? Yes, indeed. We have a purpose in the here and now, friends, right? We say this, if not every week, virtually every week. We have a purpose in the here and now. With the people right in front of us. To love, to serve, to preach the gospel, to alleviate suffering wherever, whenever, however we can. The assignment God gives us, the good works set before us. But what this text teaches us is that we're also being watched. We are part of a cosmic plan to demonstrate the wisdom of God to an unseen world who opposes God's purposes and questions his integrity just as Satan did with God in the story of Job. But Jesus' victory at the cross through his suffering disarmed these powers. Jesus, crucified in weakness, was the upside-down way of securing the victory that confounded the enemy. Just read a, reading a book here by, uh, about Bobby Jones. You ever heard of Bobby Jones? Famous, famous, famous. One of the most famous golfers in the history of golf. And I learned something about golf that I never knew in reading this book. This is 1930. I think it's at the British Amateur. He's en route to winning the first ever. Actually, Grand Slam was not even a term used until uh, he had won all four of the major golf tournaments. But back in golf in the 20s and 30s, there was something called a stymie. Anybody here besides Gavin know what a stymie is? Okay, so a few, I had never heard of it. Anybody else know what a stymie is? Just like, uh, okay, a few. So it's, what would happen back then is that if your ball, like you could place your ball, I used to do this all the time in croquet. You, you could place, like if your ball landed, if you're on the green putting, on the putting green, if your ball was in front of your opponent's ball, you didn't have to move it. As a matter of fact, the old venerable golf people thought that to pick up the ball was like, like sacrilege. And so if your ball was in the same line as your opponent, you didn't have to pick it up. You didn't have to mark it. You didn't have to move it. It's called a stymie. And so in this British tournament, it was again the third one on route to Bobby Jones' Grand Slam, on the last hole, the deciding hole, uh, otherwise it would have been a playoff, he had a stymie on his opponent. He didn't necessarily like that that was the case, but it was the case. And of course, what I mean, the ball was just perfectly in line. And so what did the guy do? He just, he actually tried to chip the ball on the green over 
Bobby Jones's ball to get in the hole. And of course he missed. Bobby Jones won and then went on to win the British Open, I think, for the Grand Slam. I, I mention that because it's this, a similar thing here. All the demonic realm, when they crucified Jesus, thought they had a stymie. And what God did is he actually did do the chip. He did the chip. But guess what? He hold it. The ball went in the hole. He won in an upside-down way that the cosmic forces, because of their twistedness and their fallenness, could never conceive. He won through his suffering. He won through his weakness. You might remember watching Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, and you might recall the scene, watching it or reading it, and you might recall the scene where those horrible beasts representing these cosmic evil forces sang and celebrated and danced and beat their sticks when Aslan, who represented our slain Savior, was butchered and murdered on that altar. They thought they had defeated the Son of God. They thought they had won. You know, a century ago, a writer commented on this, saying this about this work of the cross. The hostile powers had sought to frustrate the work of God and believed they had succeeded when they conspired against Christ and brought about his crucifixion. But unwittingly, they had been mere instruments in God's hands. The death of Christ had been the very means he had devised for the accomplishment of his plan. So it is here declared that the hostile powers, after their brief apparent triumph, had now become aware of a divine wisdom they had never dreamed of. They saw the church arising as a result of Christ's death and giving effect to what they could now perceive to have been the hidden purposes of God. That victory still resonates today. You see, through following Jesus today, in the way that we love, in the way that we reconcile, in the way that we embrace the many-colored body of Christ, in the way that we suffer, we reveal the manifold witness of God and we share in Christ's victory, still proving to the unseen world that our God is all-glorious and he is all-wise. We, friends, are his closing argument to the cosmic world. This all happens through the church. And I know I've given you a lot to think about today, and I'll just leave you with this one final question as we conclude here. Do you love the church as Jesus loves the church? Do you? Do you love the church as Christ loves the church? Are you a consumer of the church? Or are you an active contributor? Consumers throw away the church when it no longer meets their needs. Contributors stay in it and they fight for its holiness. Can you love the church as Jesus does with all of its pettiness and weaknesses, and inconsistencies. I hope that you can. I pray that you can. Close on a quote by John Stott. 
about the church. Secular history, John Stott wrote, concentrates its attentions on kings and queens and presidents, on politicians and generals, in fact, on VIPs. I might add athletes into that list. The Bible concentrates rather, the Bible concentrates rather on a group it calls the saints. Often little people, insignificant people, unimportant people, who are, however, at the same time, God's people. And for that reason, are both unknown to the world and yet well-known to God. Father in heaven, thank you for the church and thank you for the victory that you have won and the victory that you are still winning. Help us to understand, Father, and follow the example of Paul in the way that we love and in the way that we suffer. Father, may we have the same experience of grace that Paul did, such that a fresh calling may come on our lives as a church and our lives individually, that we might long to communicate the unsearchable, untraceable, incomprehensible, unfathomable riches of Christ, grace. Father, may we have experiences where we profoundly experience grace. When we come face to face and confront, Father, the reality of who we are, the reality of our own, the evil that exists in our hearts, may we not just say, I'm only the long-haired soul of a sinner. But may we say, yes, I'm a sinner, but I've been saved by grace. I'm a child of God. I'm a son of God. I'm a daughter of God. I'm loved by God forever and ever and ever and ever. Father, may this church, may this church, this little unknown insignificant church be part of a cosmic witness that says you're good you're all glorious you're all wise confounding father your very enemies may Christ be glorified in and through his church Let's respond. Let's respond to what God has done now. This is why we sing after the message, so that we can respond to what God has done. We can respond to who we are. Our hearts can swell with affection for him.